This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 213 with Molly Wisegram. To skip this intro and go right into the conversation, go to somewhere around the 6 minute and 15 second mark. I just saw a new review is left for Thank You Heartbreak and I was so moved. I really am by those gestures because I think it takes, well, making moves to actually write a review. And I'm not judging because I too am someone like this, you know, you can admire from afar and I try to really cross through that barrier in real life. (laughs) So out on the streets, if I see something that, you know, sparks me up or if someone even smells good that is near me, I say something. I really never try to hoard a compliment, but that's in person. And I think it's another sort of vulnerability or maybe it's easier to be more passive when you're like looking on social media or you're listening to a podcast to actually put into words your appreciation so it lives beyond your own head your own heart and other people can see why this matters to you so whoever wrote that review thank you so much it really wasn't lost on me that you are someone who makes the move thank you for that and to anyone who is listening you are very much keeping the stream alive so thank you for listening to thank you heartbreak i know you can do anything with your time there are so many things to be getting into so it really feels like a gift that you would choose to spend your time with us I also have such a talent for not asking my guests the event that we were speaking about. Like, explain the event. Why are you here? Instead, I'm such a therapist in the sense where I'm like, okay, forget the event. We don't need to even explain that. Let's just talk about the feelings. Let's go deeper into the pain. Let's hear about the transformation. And yeah, so the talent is not filling you in from the start about, for example, what my guest book is about. So I'm going to use this intro to read from the back of the cover her latest memoir her first memoir, The Other Side of Us, a memoir of trauma, truth, and transformation. This here is such a break upward story in the sense that you can use trauma and truth, truth around that trauma, truth about owning and not having shame around that trauma to transform yourself and to have a transformational relationship. I think too often that we feel like if a trauma comes into our lives within a relationship, that the relationship will fail, quote unquote, I don't believe in failed relationships, but that is what you hear. There's always this warning when something goes awry or life happens, life gets in the way. Some sort of grief, some sort of accident, a illness happens within a relationship. Like, you know, most relationships end after this. And so there's this kind of this daunting, um, almost expectation even that people have of relationships and have of traumas that they bring us to our knees and they break us, that they separate us. One of the most beautiful parts of this interview is when I ask my guest, when was that moment where her husband was emerging from basically being in a coma 
I will get into the backstory. And you guys were able to really see each other again, see each other as a couple again. Like you felt like you got each other back. To give it all away, I'll just tell you. She says that it was the moment they were able to sit and talk about that space of silence when they were next to each other, but not really there because of his illness and being in the hospital. So they were in a shared experience, but not able to share it. And I thought that was so profound because I think you could say, oh, I knew we were a couple again when we got our life back. We started planning for the future. We were talking about, you know, what it was gonna look like in the summer with our children. I'm making stuff up. But you look outward and you think, I knew that we were back again because we spoke about the days coming up. But it's like, really? What about filling each other in about the moments where you feel like you missed each other? That you were together but separated? And how can that bond us about becoming more certain about each other's uncertainty or using those moments of trauma where we are held back from each other to come back and bond over that experience. So I loved that Molly spoke to that. And I feel very privileged too that I get to speak to her husband next. So the next episode is going to be from her husband. And it's not only hearing his perspective, but I thought what was so cool was hearing his personality and thinking to myself, wow, what is two people that come together? What do they look like? How do they complement each other? What does it sound like? Are they the same person? Are they not the same person? And so it's really cool looking from the dynamic of a couple that broke upward together and what those two people look like that are in that dynamic. Let me get back to where I was going, which was reading from the back of the book, The Other Side of Us. In this intimate portrait, Molly Weisgram describes her personal experience as caregiver, wife, and mother amidst sudden illness. On Valentine's Day, Chris Maxwell, Molly's husband and father of their four young children, was unexpectedly diagnosed with a severe case of Julian Barr syndrome. Chris was immediately airlifted to the hospital where he became a quadriplegic on a ventilator in less than a week. Without any warning, Molly and Chris embarked on a dangerous journey, one they traveled together but separately, forced into the roles of patient and caregiver. During their shattering year-long experience, they faced uncertainty, trauma, and incomprehensible mystery. They also experienced deep truth, growth, and transformation. I'm just going to get straight into this episode and not steal another moment. Thank you again for being here. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Molly Weisgram. I am an author who recently released a book called The Other Side of Us, a memoir of trauma, truth, and transformation. Mm. What is one question that you feel like you wanted to hear other people ask you during you know, this devastating experience? I don't know if I had a question I wanted. I felt like I was a baby with new eyes in the experience that I had and which I wrote about. And so if anything, it was probably people feeling safe enough to ask me about a new perspective that I might have gained or I was seeing from. Wait, so you don't feel like people were asking you about how you might be rethinking your life? I think in the situation that I was in, And I can explain that further because I know my book title doesn't give that kind of the premise exactly. But I feel like when in a traumatic breaking apart situation, I think it's scary to be kind of just holding space with someone. And I've had a lot of wonderful support. I think everybody was very gracious about trying to be gentle with me. Mm. And I remember saying things like, this is such an education. Mm -hmm. What an amazing, I mean, horrible in some way, I mean, but amazing education 
And I, I guess that's just the way I tend to look at life, as painful as it is. But I just learned that real education is new perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't say anybody didn't, no one said the wrong thing, but I was really in an exploratory mm-hmm. place looking at my wholeness through, even though I, I was kind of broken. I wonder what could inspire people to think of others as teachers, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that people can be uncomfortable when someone is grieving. I think people feel like there needs to be this pressure that they can help people escape the pain. Mm -hmm. So let me distract them from it. I'll be there. You know, they're out. Whereas it sounds like with you, it's like you would have loved to engage with someone more about what was really going on. Like, where were the benefits? What was a silver lining? What was a big Mm -hmm. shift? That's leading with curiosity rather than with this burden of having to relieve people Mm -hmm. of their pain. And I think that's why people withdraw is they think that they're going to be called to provide something that will change everything for them rather than just truly being like an inquisitive person in a listening ear. My situation was maybe even a little different. I'm looking at this from an angle of, I have to admit that when people are in grief, I'm exactly yeah. that way. I'm, I want to say the right thing. I want to be not a burden in any kind of way. And everyone's so different that I think it takes this extraordinary effort to show up in a way that's like, you know, will be helpful. I have a really, I feel like my community, my family, my friends, they showed up. I know that about your dad waking, like, you know, coming to the house and getting yeah. the kids like to brush their teeth and eat mm-hmm. and everything. I was just like, just showing up in that way. Somehow that made me emotional, like that you mm-hmm. even got that from your parents, but that, that was what they decided to do. Mm-hmm. I won't ever forget the way that my, and I, I mean, I could name everyone, but I'll, I'll just talk about my parents for a moment. We all pass at some point. I will never forget in this weird way, you know, I wouldn't want my husband to be ill and have all these things. And it created this opportunity where I will never forget what my parents did for me, did for us. I mean, what a gift. And I'm not saying I'm happy that it all happened, but I am saying that life does happen and it provides these opportunities. And suddenly I'm just touched to my core. My parents are amazing and I'm lucky to have them. And then the way they demonstrated their everyday love in the most difficult of times. And that kind of kept going on and on and on. And so the book that I wrote was really a healing tool for me, but it's a love story, not because it's a romantic love story. It's a love story because I feel the way people showed up for me was incredibly loving. So, you know, when I say what question do I wish they would have asked? I'm a pretty private person in general, which is mm. funny now to be you sharing your diary out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I felt at the time I'm pretty private. So there's a section in the book where I talk about like, I don't ever want to be labeled a victim. I've worked yes. hard not to Reject be a victim. That mentality. I can't wait to talk I, about that. I don't want to be that. And so for me, just, I just kind of wanted to go inside, but the fact that I had to have voice because I had to narrate our life for folks who cared very much. And it was such mm. a ever-changing and really kind of dramatic situation. It's the right thing to do. You need to communicate. I remember at first you didn't know that that was the right step to make. Yeah. Partially because I'm really private and I kind of just wanted to get through it and then we'd get over it. But you know, there's a point where you notice communication is so incredible and it brings people together. It is a way that people can, one, they just care. They want to know what it is that's happening. But two, if you don't communicate, which I have a natural tendency in my life up to this point, kind of at the before time, a natural inclination just to kind of, I'll do it myself. I'll carry it myself. 
I feel like that was the energy. I could feel that in the book, but then it's like you've rejected victim blaming you know, your whole life and what a gift, right? That you know that it's a frame of mind, but yet internally inside of you, it felt like there was this constant like guilt, this apologizing, which is mm-hmm. somewhere there's a victim attached to that. I'm a victim, mm-hmm. for, you know, being the one that didn't have this and my husband does. Mm-hmm. And so That's like, true. <laughs> to the outside world, yeah, you wouldn't let anyone know that you have this narrative mm-hmm. of that reflects anything at all of being a victim. And I'm the mm-hmm. same way, but yet internally, it's like this dialogue, which I realize does make me a victim to myself over and over. Man, I have never thought about that, but I am so appreciative. You just framed it that way because maybe I can stomp that thing that I do. I've had other people kind of feel like, geez, are you Catholic? (laughs) Right. So much sin. I was like, well, well, why? Yeah. Well, yes, I am. But the guilt thing was just there. And I don't know if that's a survivor's guilt kind of thing, or if it's just a constant inner critic, because I have a a certain level of perfectionism that I just want to make sure I'm doing it right. I have a responsibility. I feel called that I want to do it right. So and it was when you yeah. saw your husband look, I remember there's this one part where he like glared at you or something and you thought it was mm-hmm. because maybe you weren't advocating well enough or you were, mm-hmm. you know, how was that? You know, because he's not able to talk and also he's just reacting in a way out of the pain, but you could be personalizing it. So how is it in this moment of your perfectionist, you want to be doing the perfect job and you can't get the feedback that you're doing well? Well, it's awful. It's lonely. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, you have everything that you'd ever bring in from a relationship too. So you're in a relationship, but one person is behind glass. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but like you can't hear them. Access, you can't, yeah. And they're, you don't really know what all those pain meds are doing in the situation of the glaring. He has no <laughs> idea. He doesn't remember any of that. He I mean, probably this, was just trying to see you better. I think he was, yeah. t- I mean, all the dreams and things were happening. Who knows? You felt alone and here you're pulled away from, was it your four children? Mm -hmm. So you really were alone. And I just, for other people that feel like, especially as the caretaker, that you're showing up, that that's your role. Like my question is who takes care of you and how Mm -hmm. do you navigate that aloneness that you can't really even tell people about because it seems like the wrong thing to be complaining about. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially when we were lucky, Chris's family showed up and supported, I mean, to the nth degree, but when you're used to a partner who you you do everything with and you're literally sitting next to that person now but you can't hear them and you don't know and you're now becoming their voice and you're their advocate because I learned a lot about advocacy in healthcare situation and I've heard that before but it was never personal that advocacy is critical and I wanted to say the right thing but my partnership I was very used to Chris being that person I bounced mm. things off of him I couldn't access him very well but then at what point is it appropriate for me to say what do you think I should you know like There's certainly times where that's appropriate, but there's, I'm not going to go and be like, Chris, I'm really so scared. I'm scared you're going to die. You don't say that to the patient. Is it the wrong thing to be doing? Is it the wrong thing to be in moments where you feel like you could lose someone to be honest about your fear about losing them? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. And I think it's kind of dependent on the person. What I knew at that time is that what I felt, whether or not this is right or wrong, but what I felt is if I let go, of all my feelings of everything, I wouldn't be able to keep going. And so for me, it was sort of my, not a big battle person, but I would say it was kind of like, it was my armor. I had to muster what I could to keep on. And there were certain feelings I had to repress because otherwise, I don't know. I don't know if I could have done it in the way that I felt like I needed to at the time. 
Yeah. Like maybe having that grace in the beginning or having a focus on your husband and putting one foot in front. Like there's so much to navigate early on, Mm -hmm. but you talk about it and it's relatable that anger was this shield, right? Mm -hmm. That there was this fear that if you got close to sadness, it would feel like falling, like you would fall Mm -hmm. down. And I think that so many people that for me, oh my God, I always thought that sadness would just take me back again. And then I would mm-hmm. never, it was all, it's always been, I feel like I'm never going to come back from it this time. Yeah. That's it's, how I get it. It's just all been a fluke. A moment that you can go in and to trust that an emotion isn't going to take you down. Mm-hmm. It actually, it's critical. I've learned that more and more and more. My counselor applauds when I can try to squeeze a tear out. I mean, cause I can feel myself. You're so funny. That's just, it's true. But oh my God, is, you can feel yourself hold it in. Like uh-huh. you, you don't really, I can feel myself. Um, I just, I divert to the to-do list. I divert to structure and creating all of this opportunity for success, I guess, Think, things I can control. And then effectively I can kind of separate from my emotions because I won't be as effective if I have to deal with them. But that comes back at you, I think. And this is a whole nother thing, but I think once you repress enough sad feelings, the joyful times are a little more muted too. Inaccessible. Yeah. I found that so interesting. So now I'm trying to, at the time it served me, right? So I did what I had to do in order to carry on in a situation. And then you have to recognize like, okay, I I built my armor. I did that. I needed to in the moment. Mm -hmm. And now you have to deconstruct that armor. In yeah. order to, and it's not comfortable because you you built it for a reason. There was scary things and hard things. It worked for me, but I I do know that there's so much that you also deflect when you keep that armor up, and mostly when you don't necessarily need it in the same way. So Chris talks about life being kind of a series of separation and reconnection, and I think mm. that's true with your feelings too. Like sometimes they're a little inconvenient, but that doesn't mean you you need to find a way to reconnect with it. Wow. I mean, I think that this is actually a really smart way of coping and, and the ability to see that this served me for a certain period of time being this way, you know, mm-hmm. like I got good at that, but that doesn't mean I have to be that way forever. And I think the same thing is like for friendships or relationships mm-hmm. is it was genuine. My involvement in that thing was genuine, but now I realize that I've outgrown it just like I've outgrown this approach to dealing with my feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's time to move to the next stage of acknowledgement. I mean, I feel like that's what counseling was for you. It worked for a while for you not to go there. Then this new stage of awareness, which you appreciate because you're always looking for the perspective and everything. It's like, that's what then counseling was able to get you to do. Absolutely. And I do agree with that. I mean, anything we engage in has the potential to, we can feel love and we can feel hurt. But at the end of the day, whatever it does to you, it's your own growth. So whether you're in reconnection or separation mode, all of those things, I think are actually, it is growth. You become a different person, whether or not you love all of the things that are happening on the outside Mm -hmm. of you, you are somehow growing into who you are most supposed to be. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, my story is one of those where we have a happy ending. And so maybe it's really easy for me to say that to a degree and that's fine. But there's plenty of people like you too, like that need someone like you that didn't lose it all. And you still change into a different person. And I think you get to acknowledge that in a way that honors self. And I think when I say that, I mean, life is for the purpose of refining our soul. And I think all of that is refinement and it doesn't always feel good, but those experiences change you and it's okay to 
acknowledge and to better understand maybe how you were changed. What was one moment where you remember feeling like first, because you said often that like you would look in into Chris's eyes and looking for him to see that there is remembrance of us. Mm -hmm. And like you said before, it was like, as if you're behind glass, you can't access that person. What was the first time where you remember feeling like, oh my God, we're back. I have my husband here. I really think it's the first, the real part of that. And where I felt like, oh my gosh, there it is, is when I went back, my husband was in three different healthcare facilities at the point where he was still on a ventilator, but had a tracheostomy. He could speak. And I can't remember how long that was into the, I mean, several, several weeks into the deal, but I got to go to Lincoln, Nebraska, where he was at the Madonna rehab hospital. And it was really the first time I had talked to him since this huge life, life changing several weeks. And I think it was suddenly like, oh yeah, that partnership. I knew myself as who I was with him. And I had disconnected from that in a kind of by necessity because he literally wasn't available to me, but because mm. I had to make decisions, I had to be the parent for the kids. But when we finally got to talk again, you know, this is, I have to try to remind him to blink. I mean, he's literally quadriplegic and on tracheostomy, but literally just having the opportunity to debrief and try to understand each other's perspectives. And what were you thinking at this point? What were you thinking? Mm. To me, it was just, it was sort of that a moment of reconnection after a really, really unthinkable, traumatic (laughs) several weeks. And that felt good. It was kind of a reconnection of myself in a way too, because I was so used to him being part of who I was. I love that it wasn't just I felt like we were back together because we were present and we were able to talk about the future was really about going back over this time in your life that was traumatic. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you guys weren't able to talk it through at the time, Mm -hmm. the value it shows of what was it like for you to be experiencing this when I was like, there's this desire, I think, to know how someone else is experiencing the thing that we've been experiencing with them. Exactly. I mean, think about when you're just physically standing in a room and there's people there you are seeing something different than they are. And I find that so, you know, we lived this experience together, but we, our perspectives were so Mm -hmm. incredibly, so incredibly different that, yeah, I mean, you have to take the time to understand or not assume. I mean, just like when I said in my book that I felt so guilty when he moved onto the ICU, like I had somehow failed him and, Mm -hmm. and, or it was, it was a traumatic moment when we did that. And he really was just, when he woke up, he was just super happy. He could breathe. And you said, right? <laughs> he was in a Zen-like state. He told me later. I mean, and this is the stuff that all actually the book right. was a blessing because while well, we got to do this while he's on a tracheostomy and we got to start to talk about like what the heck just happened and what's going to happen and all of that. The book was actually a really safe place to start to really share perspectives. I mean, he missed out on a year of, you know, his family's life. And not that we went on as normal, but we went on and experienced the Guillain-Barre syndrome situation, but from a completely different angle. So talk about an experience. I I didn't write the book for that, but had I known it was going to do that, I would have written the book for that because it was so incredible to understand, have that reconnection in, in terms of sharing perspective. I had a boyfriend when I was in high school and he ended up in a motorcycle accident and he like had pronounced him dead on the scene oh and they airlifted him and they got him back. He was in a coma for over a month and I was there the entire time and I just knew I needed to go. I knew I needed to be witness, even though there was this feeling like 
his friends might look at me and be like, why is she here all the time? Or like, did she really think she was that important of a girlfriend or everything? But I remember like a big part of what I did while I was there is I documented everything. First, I had every picture printed out and I was doing the scrapbook, but I documented every single day and I gave it to him. And he, by the time, I mean, it was this whole thing of first person he asked for, and then he never wanted to see again after he got out because of the shame and and what I had witnessed, all that. Mm -hmm. But he had this book and I wondered to myself, you know, he's married now. I'm like, does he still have it? And what did it say? Because I feel like that was such a defining moment in my life of showing me that I could show unconditional love. Like there was something so brave about that time in my life mm-hmm. that I didn't let other people that said, don't show up. It's going to be traumatic. Like I didn't let it stop me. Like mm-hmm. this person could die and I shouldn't be scared. I agree. And I think for that person, you know, and I'll speak on behalf of my husband, but they don't have the perspective. I mean, being the patient and being the caregiver, being the person who's alongside is a very different experience. And I think they often aren't available to understand if they were standing there without, you know, it's not in the patient role, what that perspective is like. And I think it took even my husband quite a while, even after he got home to maybe even appreciate how he might've looked in some of those situations. I mean, he lost 60 pounds. He couldn't Blink. And at the time, his eyelids were taped shut. His eyelids were taped shut because when you lose all muscle function, I mean, literally all enough where you literally can't blink your own eyes, you think your eyes would be closed, but they are wide open. And to try to get them closed is actually kind of difficult, which is, I know it's it's very, or something. Extremely creepy. Yeah. How did you handle those things? Because that's real. I remember that stuff. And I feel like I've blocked out most of the memories, Mm -hmm. the sounds, the screaming, the scent, all of that. Mm -hmm. How did you cope with that? Was it through the community you had? No, I just kept it in. I just did it. I just, you know, I think being a mom, I don't know if this is really true, but being a mom of four kids, I think I just had gotten kind of used to changing diapers and doing what you got to do. And yeah, you get, so I think- for me, even in the first week, I'm, I'm an English and psychology major. I am not a medical anything. But even in the first week where, I mean, all of a sudden we were doing transfers, we were helping cleanups. I was jumping in to do these things. And only later did I realize that it was one of maybe one of the texts or somebody was like, oh, I thought you were in healthcare because Ugh. I don't, which kind of Love makes it. sense. But for me, I just had to jump in and help my loved one. Yeah. I, it was kind of hard to know what else I was supposed to do. I think I'm supposed to help. I love this. Like the ability to be called and to naturally fall into line of like duty of, of just knowing of not doubting yourself. There's just suddenly no doubt. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't, you weren't a healthcare major or had that background, yeah. but you somehow it seemed like you knew how to do it. Yeah, I just I just did it. But I do think that, you know, there is skill and technique to a lot of things. And sometimes they also just need hands. So I, I think it was welcome from the perspective of they could actually have mm-hmm. um, a little bit of help. And, you know, I will say that I'm glad I did that. I wouldn't have done it any other way. And if that it all happened again, I'd do all of those things the same. But I think those are some of the traumatic reverberations that you deal with later. I remember Chris, when he came home and he was, you know, he could walk. I mean, he still doesn't have really very much feeling in his feet as everything's weird, but he was just laying down in bed watching TV. And I just, I mean, I just got this, like, (gasps) he looked just like he was in the hospital bed. I mean, it's it's those echoes of things that are just, um, they're haunting and 
it's just the way it is. It's, you know, it's, it's our human it's condition. It's a part yeah. of it. It's like a part of who you knew him to be. And there's going to be flashes of that reality now. Mm-hmm. And there's something as, as haunting as you say it is. I mean, there's something bonding about it too. It's like you saw someone like really at their rawest, mm-hmm. you know, like will, everything yeah. stripped away and yeah. you still choose them. I mean, that's such a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they talked a lot about they as in like healthcare professionals is that, you know, it can be really hard on the coming home side. I mean, like get prepared, like just know that that is, it can be challenging. And we have a really good marriage and it, and it was challenging. I mean, just the roles that everybody played and the the place where he came home, my emotional state when he came, you know, like we're just yeah. in different, even the kids were confused. I think our oldest pulled him aside at one point and said, I think I need more responsibility. I don't really know what my place is anymore. You know, it, who, it just who was said that your son or your, your husband, my oldest son. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, yeah. He took to heart that he was man of the house. I mean, it was just sort of like, he took it to heart. So that was really quite incredible, but it's, it is very confusing for what a very difficult transition, but thankfully we had a good marriage and it was still difficult, but I would say that it helped that he and I had done quite a bit of, oh, consciousness or spiritual work, kind of a thought process around your thoughts really, really matter. If you're not conscious of your thoughts, you might be planting the wrong Thing. Like you, mm. you have an opportunity, you have choices here. And we've done some of this kind of learning together years before. How long have mm-hmm. you been together? I think we've been married 17 years. 17 years. So what drove you guys to be growth oriented, either individuals and then in your relationship? Did you mm-hmm. meet each other and know that you both were that way? I think we sensed that we're both that way. I think that totally is, was a draw for us. I mean, that's just, I think that is probably one of the but did you date a lot of other people before that were oriented that way? Not really. Yeah. Oh my God. I finally met someone that's more like this. Yeah. Such a different experience. The mental connection that can come from it. And also like the trust, I think that you can speak up in a relationship to try mm-hmm. to direct it in a certain way, be someone is willing to take in feedback or to just to talk about something and realizes it's not a drawback. It's actually an acceleration toward mm-hmm. a more fulfilling uh, relationship with each other. Our relationship really, his sister's one of my best friends and we didn't date for the first couple of years. We knew each other. And it wasn't until I was doing a, like a national abroad thing at the study in college that we started emailing. And then honestly, through email and phone calls, that's where it really took off. But I think it's because we're so oriented in similar ways of thinking. Chris is a big thinker, a positive, big thinker, and a critical thinker. I think what I'm saying is I just so appreciated that we had already had some of this foundation built in our relationship to how we want to show up in the world, how we see situations, and how we have certain responsibility, even when we're not in control of how we think. And so, you know, thank God for that, because I think that really changed a situation that could have not, I don't want to say I've been as healthy, but I'm just thankful that we had that foundation for the opportunity or the challenge that we had to walk through. So would you say to someone that, you know, is going through kind of the normal breakup and is feeling like, why put myself back out there? How would you tell them to think of it in you and Chris's way? Well, Chris would say that you know, you're exactly where you need to be mm-hmm. and perfection's imperfect. And sometimes it's a curvy road, but you know, 
I think to consciously, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm going off the cuff here, but to consciously say, I'm going to get myself back out there. I think when you turn yourself inward, your eye inward and start sifting through or start thinking about like, okay, what is my thought process? What, you know, what am I attracting by what I'm thinking? I think there's so much in breakups, especially talk about an opportunity to be self-reflective. Um, yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's a great invitation to, to actually take the invitation toward yourself. That's exactly yes. what I mean. Cause you're half of that equation. And honestly, the more you show up as the way genuinely and authentically that you want to be, the more you're, you are likely to find you'll be kind of prepped for that yes. other person. Yeah. So happy for them. By leaning more into and showing and not waiting until someone is in your life to become like yourself and mm-hmm. doing it now you're prepping for their presence. You're, so, it takes off. Yeah. so you guys kind of just meet each other exactly where you are. And this is good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how the universe works. I mean, honestly, I think there's these invitations that you are given to refine your soul, right? To become as authentic as possible, because that's how you create an authentic and full life for yourself. And that's how all of the other pieces kind of fit together. I coined the word break upward. I'm curious I loved that. I saw that. Yeah, thank you. Chris always talks about spiraling upward and falling or upward. falling forward. Falling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Richard Rohr. And it was just where he talked about like, there are certain times in your life where you kind of do this crossover. And there's a point where, you know, it's a lot of the, maybe the structure you're building the house. So kind of, and not literally, but maybe you're building mm-hmm. the house, like, the material things and the right job and all of the kind of the structure thing, not a bad thing, but then you kind of cross over and you're thinking about the actual life that you want to live within that structure, or maybe you have to knock it, knock a wall down or whatever. But I, I know that this has brought us to another side of life where I want the deeper things. It's an opportunity to look. It's that again, an invitation to be like, okay, how are we going to live this life? Because I'm still going, how the heck did we live that? And now we're just back to normal. Like we're kind of just, when I say back to normal, I don't know what normal is anymore, but like, here we are. I'm not, my kids have a dad. I have my same husband. We are living in the same house, same jobs. We he's are doing here well. he's, and he's doing really, really well. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, what would you do if you knew you only had whatever time with your yeah. family or whatever? Well, we crossed that and now we're here. Are we going to do it the exact same way? Are we going to do some other? Th- I mean, exactly. well, it's, it's like so exciting. Pandemic. And so, you know, it's like yeah. when people think about the pandemic and one, when we were going into it, I was like, oh my God, to try to have the same life that I was living beforehand. Mm-hmm. Why would I do this? This is an opportunity to try to bring in, you know, focus my attention in a totally different way, try to have a new energy with my days and toward myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that changed so much. But after you have that invitation to go right back to the old normal and thinks that means we're successful now, we just got back to where we were. Like, really? Aren't mm-hmm. we supposed to take this thing and help us pivot and launch ourselves somewhere? Mm-hmm. And that's up to us. You know, I agree. Like, there's this disruption and then it's kind of easy to like everybody, everybody's kind of looking suddenly from a different perspective of like, oh my gosh, what do I really value? Oh my gosh, I didn't realize I valued X, Y, or Z as much or literally our health. I mean, that's something that many of us get to take for granted and being fearful or thoughtful about that. And so grateful just to get to have a dinner party at a friend's house or whatever. Mm. Um, but then things kind of normalize and Whew, we avoided that one. But I actually think that that's where it's up to us. Like that's where we 
it's the self work that you, you get to step into it. And it's easier to do in some strange way when there's a crisis, but it's kind of creating that opportunity to take full advantage and be accountable to that thought process when we were seeing things kind of from that different perspective, when we're kind of on this I don't know. Never, I guess never waste a crisis. Be thoughtful about what you get to do. Never waste a crisis. I love that. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. You know, and I I think that if people can't get there in their own mind where they are able to think better thoughts, because when you're in a really down place, I mean, it's hard to have an inspiring thought. I think that's why it's so important to pick up different authors and even, you know, listen to different podcasts to introduce new thoughts, new ways of thinking. Because the truth is we get so attached to our perspective. And we let it be limited there. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. All those boundaries and barriers and things that we have built up, I kind of call it the thorn, those things that we think certain ways because it didn't serve us to think in any other way. We built our trails right Right through the wilderness, but it doesn't mean it's the best one. And in fact, there's a lot of other probably beautiful things to see if you recalibrate and maybe forge another way, but it doesn't, you know, to your point. There are people out there that are talking about thinking other ways, forging new ways. And so it's not that you necessarily have to carve the path. You can kind of learn from others, but absolutely. But I I think just that inventory of your thinking and that natural inclination to seize up and be fearful and think like, oh, this isn't going to be good. Like, I can sense it. Or is it, there's going to be something that that comes from this and I can trust that. I think it's a practice. Well, it reminds me of just the fact that even you know before his illness, you relied on him to be the social person, the one that engages. Mm-hmm. And I love that even just early in his recovery, he took on the responsibility of acknowledging others, you know, so they mm-hmm. look back. But to think, and I really, really related to this, that there was this, you said, self-imposed retreat, retreating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when he was unable to speak, you had to finally realize like, it's my voice too. I have to have a voice. I have to engage people. I mean, wow. Like breaking out of that thing, because you were conscious before that I'm going to let my husband do this because he's better at it. Mm-hmm. When you make that, you're never exercising that muscle and you can end up feeling mm-hmm. helpless. Like I could never mm-hmm. do that now. It's been mm-hmm. so long. Mm-hmm. So it was just tell me just something about this self-imposed retreat. Tell me about well, it. I, you know, I think Authenticity is my number one value. And I notice that I have a harder time showing up completely as me when I have less time with individuals. So I just found myself in, and Chris is so, so lovely. And so he just gets so much energy from those experiences. So I just realized like, you know, I'm spending so much energy. I, I have to learn how to conserve that because it's just so, it's so exhausting. But, you know, they talk about ways of thinking that way of thinking well, it served me because I had to conserve my energy and I really want to show up authentically with whatever I do. And if I can tell that it's something, you know, I'm yeah. I'm not doing that as much. But when I had to, I, I say I, I cleared my voice when I had to use mine for Chris's and I found my voice when we had to, I had to start narrating our life. Mm. But when I started exercising that voice and I started talking to all these amazing people who honestly cared so much about us. And honestly, I didn't even know, I didn't even know that we were cared for that. It was so, it was um, really amazing. But then I ended up finding just really, really authentically enjoying these conversations. So while 
Chris might be better at it, or it's, you know, I have to muster the energy. It's just natural. It gives him energy. I kind of have to muster it. What could be better than authentic connection, really? So, you know, I think we all have things in us, but we, we tend to rely on our partners or our people for things that it's just a natural thing when you kind of become a unit. And so you just allow the other person to get stronger here because they're already strong in it and you're going to do this. And that's so normal. And it's so fine. It's but, almost like why people choose a spouse, you know, because they're good yeah, at well, something. And, yeah. You know. I mean, you tend to compliment each other yeah. and I, and that's wonderful. But I think where you don't know your strength, you don't know what you're capable of because you don't necessarily always have to use it. I think once again, an invitation to learn more about yourself and while not comfortable, it helps you know your wholeness, probably. Mm-hmm. Exercise your wholeness. Exercise. Yeah. You know, certain parts just kind of disappear from your vision because mm. you don't need them. I don't know if you don't need them, but you just, you found other ways to take care of that. And then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, huh, maybe my way of thinking about like, I'm just going to be, you know, I'll be the wing person who kind of just Right. Whatever. It, in the shadow. Maybe that didn't, yeah, maybe that didn't serve me. So it's created a lot of opportunity for growth in a lot of ways and a lot of emotion that is uncomfortable as well. But not that I want to shove away those uncomfortable. They're harder to access for me because I don't like to feel sad <laughs> and I don't like to feel unsure. And I don't like that. Who does? But you've lived in it. But I've lived in it. And I'll say there's not light without dark. I feel like it's all kind of a, it's all part of the bigger plan. It's all part of your wholeness. It's a cultivation of who you are when it hurts a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, because I love to do this, um, I never like explain what we're even, you know, like what, what was the big trauma? What happened? I somehow <laughs> just go right into the feelings of it all. I mean, it's really, you know, quickly mm-hmm. what happened? What did your, what sure. was your husband diagnosed with? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> oddly on Valentine's day of 2019, my husband was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a rare autoimmune disorder where essentially normal, healthy, active person, but you get a common illness, a common virus or bacteria, your immune system just gets confused. And instead of attacking what it should be attacking, it, it goes after the nervous system. And so because it affects the peripheral nervous system, you start with like a tingling in your hands and feet and there's varying cases. Most aren't severe. If you Google it, it's like two to four weeks, you'll probably be home and back to your life. Well, in this case, his tingling and numbness in hands and feet, it was such a severe case that it came from the outside in and eventually, actually within like five or six days, shut down his diaphragm so he could no longer breathe. It affected more than just the outside coating of the nerves. It affected the axon of the nerves, which is us severe to be um, completely quadriplegic on a ventilator for 15 weeks, couldn't blink and had to really fight his way back into, it was a patient's game because you never know for sure how long it's going to take for someone who has that severe case of Guillain-Barre to start some recovery and muscle activation and nerves starting to kind of reconnect and heal. But in his case, he was inpatient. So he was seven hours away from us in a rehabilitation center for he returned nine months later and able to walk. It was miraculous. I mean, these cases are so different in so many ways, especially when you're in a severe case, you just don't know for sure what's going to happen. And and there's so much fear about not getting things back. So yeah, we had a eight-year-old, let's see, a six-year-old, I think a three-year-old and an eight-month-old at the time. So our 
frame of mind was completely on getting back into the swing of life after just having our fourth baby. I was getting, you know, back from maternity leave. We were doing the normal things you would do when you're in your late thirties and having kids and raising families. And this was the last thing that we'd have ever, ever thought might be. That's the scariest thing of all. Yes, you're right. Cause there's no reason for it. It's this idea that we're not protected from tomorrow. Like tomorrow could actually be the day that for us, when everything, we had no signs of anything, it shows up and you can't get lost in that, that thought because it's, you just be, it's, it's not healthy in place. Mm-hmm. I think in this way of like, I think you have everything you need to do what you got to do. I also really believe that how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so think about your strengths. <laughs> I leaned on my strengths when this happened. And they're different strengths than other people have with those folks. They lean on their strengths. I I just think you're right. You can't think like that. You just have to be open hearted and nimble and just know that you have everything you need. Life isn't forever. Tell my audience where they can find you. On Facebook and Instagram at mollywisegram.com. And I have a website, mollywisegram.com, Facebook and Insta, mollywisegram. Sorry to rush to the end. I see someone waiting for my room. I'm like, Mm -hmm. stop pacing. Um, You are so beautiful. You're so beautiful. Yeah, you really are. You have a great look. Just a side note, I had to tell you. you. I'll thank my parents. (laughs) Yeah, no. I I appreciate that. You know, I'm so happy that you survived this and that you shared it, that you leaned into the process of sharing. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, Com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.